Well, good evening, and uh, thanks for being here. I peeked my head outside right before we got started, and it's coming. <laughs> it is coming. So uh, I'm fine. I drive a Jeep. It doesn't really affect me, but you knew that was coming. So a <laughs> uh, um, couple, couple announcements. Um, Paul, Paul mentioned this again, obviously, next week. We, we won't have a service Sunday night, and he said it, well, we don't worship football. Um, I love football. Uh, but it's, it's uh, also something, it's a really good time just to invite neighbors, friends, people over. So um, Angela and I are actually going to, I think, I don't think I talked to her about this, but we're going to host a Super, Super Bowl party. Um, so you're, you're more than welcome uh, to come. We'll, we'll have, a, we actually have an extra TV that we've been hanging on to since last year just for this reason. It literally just sits in our storage space and uh, we'll have a couple of spaces to watch the game and we'll have some pizza and some drinks and that kind of thing. So um, that'll be on the city and our address and everything. So feel free to come. Don't don't feel any pressure. But we'd love to. Uh, what? Oh oh yeah. And then there's gonna be we're gonna be we're gonna ice skate at the Oval at one o'clock from one to three. Um, if you want to do that up there in Roseville, and we live just a couple miles from that. Um, fun fact: the Oval is the largest ice rink like in the United States. I don't know if you knew that or not. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Crazy, huh? Um, anyways, from one to three, and then that'll be a good time for you to just to go out and mix and mingle, have a have a uh, meal with somebody or whatever, and then we'll meet back here uh, at 6 p.m. on Saturday, and then Sunday, feel free to join us at our house um, uh, for the for the uh, Super Bowl. Uh, we'll we'll make that available from like we'll say five we'll say five five o'clock. You can make your make your way over. Okay. Um, there's something else I really wanted to mention. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We had our uh, annual meeting uh, this past Tuesday, Thursday, uh, one of those days, and uh, it was downtown, and um, we, as a church, we approved our, our budget, which was great. We have increased our budget by 2.8%. Um, last year, we, overall, as an entire church, were actually um, $100,000 in the black, which is a good thing. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of churches are not doing well, but as a, as a community of churches, we're doing really well. Um, and I'm thankful for all of you. I, I, we don't really have a budget just for our little lower town here, but um, I was pleasantly surprised by the amount of money that had come in just from here, that if it need be, that it would be easily self-sustaining. And I think that we'll be able to spend thousands of dollars this next year pouring into this community in this neighborhood. Uh, now that we know kind of what we did and what we're able to do and, and would like to challenge you um, to maybe this year give give more. And if we could just get, you know, this last year of this location, I think it was right around $114,000 uh, that came in, which is fantastic. And if we could get that to 124000 that's an extra 10000 that we could really do a lot uh, for this neighborhood. And so thank you. Uh, we, we wouldn't be here without you and your giving and your generosity. And um, so I, I appreciate that. Um, because of the weather and um, uh, just everything, I actually came directly from a wedding uh, to here, and uh, it's just been a long day, and the weather, and I'm, I'm under the weather, literally and metaphorically. It's not metaphorically. What do you say that? I don't know how you say that. Figuratively. There we go. I just keep getting thumbs down from Chaz back there. Cut it out. Stop it. Just <laughs> end it. Okay. Um, because of, uh, well, okay, in seminary, you're always taught, you know, this is like the phrase, they would use the catchphrase, like, if you give your people a sermonette, they're going to become Christianettes, like, okay, but I'm, I get it. Um, and tonight's going to be a little bit shorter, mainly because of the weather. I don't, I really don't want anyone to um, end up in a ditch because I happen to uh, like hearing myself talk too much. So let's just get this show on the, it's not a show, I didn't mean it like that. All right. We just started a service. Yes, Rosie. 
Yes? Okay. How how about we do that at the end? We'll let you, we'll, we can we can have a solo from Rosie. How's that sound? Would you guys like that? Is that what you said? You're gonna sing? Okay. All right. We'll do that right at the end. We'll close with that. Okay. My pleasure. Um, okay. So we just started a series last week between two worlds, and we just started getting into First Peter. This is just our second week in this, and so it's called Between Two Worlds because uh, Peter really does an amazing job of. Of, of looking at, here's the society we live in, here's the culture we live in, and yet, what, what he, the words that he uses, that we are, we are exiles, that we are um, aliens, foreigners in this land, all the while actually being in this land, in this neighborhood, in a community, and how do we conduct ourselves? Is there some Christian moral ethic that we need to be living and conducting ourselves while we're here in this time? And, uh, and last week, just spent looking at how this passage and how this whole book is incredibly applicable, and so kind of led with this quote by C.S. Lewis, if you find yourself with a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you were made for another world. And then uh, Martin Luther said this about the book, it's one of the noblest books in the New Testament, and it's a paragon of excellence uh, on par with Romans and says that everything that's, a, that's needed for a Christian living in life is, can be found in this book of 1 Peter. And so that's why we have chosen to go through it. And I want to summarize it uh, by reading uh, just this, this quote here by, by uh, Karen Jobes. Um, she does a phenomenal job just in one, two sentences here, really summarizing the entire book. She says this, Peter exhorts Christians to engage the world as foreigners and resident aliens, having a healthy respect for the society and culture in which they live. All right, this isn't, oh man, society's like bad, it's evil. Evil things happen. Yep, and evil things happen in my life. And I sin as well. But what is there, what is there about the society and culture that we can have respect for and we can learn from and embrace and enjoy that in which we live while here at the same time maintaining an appropriate separation from it? And it's not building walls and building monasteries and communes and, and living in them and, and, and keeping culture out that we want to be able to embrace the good things that come out of culture. And so last week, just looking at the introduction of Peter, and we, we uh, went through these um, two verses. Peter, that's the author of the book, an apostle of Jesus Christ, that he was commissioned out by Jesus himself to preach the word to the Gentiles. It says, to those who are the elect exiles, the chosen foreigners of the dispersion, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, this would have been, been modern-day Turkey, kind of Greece area, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And here Peter gives just a beautiful treatise on the order of salvation or looking at the Trinity of God the Father chosen in him, uh, according to his foreknowledge and being sanctified, being brought to life more like Christ by the power of the Spirit in obedience to Jesus Christ, the sprinkling of his blood. This week, uh, right now, we're going to look at being reborn to hope in those verses that Paul read together. So, first point is going to be turn up to Jesus. Um, a buddy of mine, Chris, Chris Wachter, he's, he's actually a Pastor Core's brother-in-law, um, and uh, so his wife Jill, this is this is her brother, and he is actually, the, <clears throat> excuse me, actually the first church planter that ever came out of Hope Community Church. He planted 
I want to say 11 or 12 years ago now, and he's at Hiawatha Church in, in south, southern South Minneapolis, um, at Hiawatha Church, and, and he was actually my first contact uh, when it came to being anywhere close to Hope Community Church. I shot an email uh, to, to this guy, uh, Chris, and then also to Pastor Steve. Um, pa- Steve emailed me back, but it took him about three or four months to finally uh, write me back, but Chris got back to me right away, and I got together with him, and and uh, we, just, we just had a little brunch, and I had some questions for him. But there's one thing about Chris that, that you'll learn about the guy is that anytime we, we do this, um, and that, we're part of a, a conference, conference, a network called the Acts 29. It's just a, a network of a global, diverse network of churches that plant churches that plant churches. And, and so when you go get training there for planting churches or whatever, uh, you, you kinda, it's kind of it's awkward, and it sounds kind of weird, but you kind of have this, someone will preach, and there's probably 10 or 12 pastors sitting around, and they're just kind of critiquing the work. But every single time, it doesn't matter who it is, it doesn't matter how much they talk, this guy, Chris Wachter, always says, hey, man, you got to turn up to Jesus, right? And there was even a guy this last time who went through the class that said, I know Chris is going to tell me to turn up to Jesus. That was actually Pastor Drew uh, Zolke, our youth pastor, who went through the class. He's like, I know he's going to say that. And, he's, and he was going crazy on Jesus. And the first thing Chris Wachter says Hey, you, you got to turn up to Jesus, man, right? Because it's all about Jesus, and that's what, that's what Peter does here, which is phenomenal. So I want to, whoop, 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 I got ahead of myself. Right here, verse 1, praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And going back to the two verses I just read, you can see Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, and then Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. Four times in three verses, he mentions Jesus, that it is all about Jesus. And so again, Karen Job says this, the life of Jesus and the believer's life are inseparable in Peter's thought. In 1 Peter, Jesus is not only the object of Christian faith, he is also the pattern of Christian destiny. And so we can see right off the bat that every single thing about this book is just going to be grounded in the life of Jesus Christ and who he is and the living hope and word, as we'll see. Next point is we have this new birth that happens Paul says this, he says, in his great mercy, in God the Father's great mercy, God the Father has given us new birth. This should sound familiar, maybe being born again, and and we get to John chapter 3, and those verses where where Jesus is confronted by a, a, a Pharisee, Nicodemus, who comes to him, and Jesus, he says, what must I do to be saved, right? What, what do I have to do? And Jesus replies, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, unless they have this new birth. Verse 4, I love Nicodemus' response. Uh, How can someone be born when they're already old? Nicodemus says, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born, right? I, like, I mean, here's the thing. I was just talking about this on Systematic this last week. Like, Jesus, he had to have been a funny guy, right? I mean, I mean, you think about it. He's the, he's the creator of all things. Uh, he, he has the, the, he's the most creative human being who's ever lived, right? I mean, he had to have been funny. And I can't imagine just the look on his face when Nicodemus says, oh, oh so we got to go back in our mother's womb to do this? How does this work, right? And it's just like, what are you talking about? No, right? There's something else going going on here. And I love here what Wayne, uh, no, it's Karen Job, excuse me, it says this, Peter's conception of new birth includes entrance into a new order of existence 
but combines with it that of divine parentage. Men or mankind enter into a new life as children of its author. All right, because we got to think, right? We, we kind of have this phrase that at least culturally that people say, well, everybody's a child of God, right? Or everybody's a, a creature of God or, or creation of God. And that's true in one sense. But there's another sense that you must be born again, that you must, must be, have this new birth. And there's something that changes because every human being who's ever lived, God is their creator. God is their author. And that's their relationship, period. But there's something that happens when you pass from death to life, or to use Peter's language later on in the book, that we go from darkness into marvelous light, that when that happens, there's something that changes with that relationship, that it's not just creator, creation to creator or creation to author. It is now a creation, and now it's son and daughter to father. And I don't know about a lot of you and, and, and your stories. I know some of your stories, and I know a lot of you know my story of my dad passing away when I was 14 and growing up for some very formative years of my life without a dad and being able to look and read Scripture and be able to call somebody my father that's not my father and all these weird fighting things, but to be able to look at this and say, no, he is a loving father, a father that I never could have had on this earth. Moving on, we also see this living hope. Again, looking at these verses, says this. In God the Father's great mercy, the Father has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In Thessalonians, we read this. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died so that you may not grieve as others who do not have, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. And this morning, as I was thinking about these verses and this, this living hope, it's not just some, man, man, I really, really hope this is true. This is a hope, and in the, in the language, it's like getting a receipt, right? That when you purchase something from Amazon or Google, Google doesn't really sell anything, but it's, that's basically it, right? You're, if you buy something, you're buying from one of those two companies usually, right? So, so you buy something, but you get a receipt. And when you get that receipt, you don't go, man, I really hope this thing comes. No, you, you, have, you have this, right? You, you have something in exchange that you've been, you've been given. That's that faith. That's this, this hope that I expect. And I know, because I can, I can track it, I know I'm going to get it. And that's the kind of hope that we have. And our hope isn't in some dead faith or dead religion or ritual or buildings or anything like that. It's in a risen, living Savior. Do you realize that right now, if this is true, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is in flesh somewhere in the universe? He's taken on a body for you and for me, and he suffered, and he died, and he rose again for you and me, and he is in his glorified state somewhere waiting to return. And I was thinking about that. I, I thought about this this morning, that our motivation for Christian living or, or moral ethics or whatever you want to be, the, 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 the things that were taught in Scripture, that how we should conduct ourselves as believers, our motivation for Christian living is built, is founded on the fact that our Savior is alive and gives us hope to endure even when our circumstances seem hopeless that when the world around us is just falling apart, 
when I'm being attacked, and specifically when we're going to look at next week, looking at how we suffer specifically for the fact that I'm a Christian, that I'm a believer, that once I'm suffering in these ways, I have hope. He is the foundation. And we're going to look at the remainder of the book, that as we look at how Jesus is the, is the deep-rooted foundation that we're going to build on that. We're going to build up the walls and we're going to paint the rooms and decorate the rooms with how should we conduct ourselves now in this society and in this culture. When is there a time for us as Christians to stand up and say, I can't do that. I can't support that. And then in what ways should we voice ourselves and voice what we know Scripture teaches? Peter's going to talk a lot about killing sin. And as we looked at last week, this is hard, right? It's convicting. Um, I don't like being confronted with sin. (laughs) But I don't want you to walk out of here hopeless because we have the hope of the world. So we have this living hope. He says this, In his great mercy he has given us new birth, a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and to an inheritance. This should be an inheritance is is the point here and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Wayne Grudem says this, the inheritance of those who are born again is thus shown to be far superior to the earthly inheritance of the people of Israel in the land of Canaan. What they were promised, what they were given, that earthly land was not kept for them, but was taken from them in exile and later by Roman occupation, even while they possessed the land, right? even while they, they lived in it and possessed it and were in control of it, it produced rewards that decayed, rewards whose glory faded away. The beauty of the land's holiness before God was repeatedly defiled by sin. And here, our inheritance is one that will never fade, that it will not rust or corrupt. Thieves can't break in and steal that it will last forever because it is secured for us in heaven. And how is it secured? Well, based on this passage, it is kept and it is secured by faith. Peter says this, Our inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. That that hope that we have of that inheritance, of what we're going to obtain, that we're going to see Christ and and be with Christ and and be raised from the dead, and we're going to gain this inheritance, we're shielded by this faith that God has given us. There's a lot of different things that came to mind when I was thinking of of shielded, and I I remembered this story, and um, I have have an older brother, a big brother. He's five years older than me, and and, uh, when I was a kid... I was, a, I was a pastor's kid, a PK, and we lived in, in a little town, Bloomington, Illinois, and, and right across the street, there was this crazy Lutheran church that had like drums on the stage and all crazy, right? And we weren't allowed to go in there, you know, of course. But um, we, we used to go, they had this really big parking lot, and we'd go over there and we'd, we'd roller skate, and I think it was rollerblades were out at the time and all that, all that fun stuff. So we were rollerblading and we rode our bikes, and this one day, I just wiped out, I mean, hard. Right, and I had to have been, man, second, third grade maybe. And uh, the secretary from the Lutheran church, I think she might have seen me fall or something, and 
you know, I'm crying, and, and my brother's nowhere to be seen. Yeah, he's gone. I'm just a little boy crying in the parking lot. And, and this woman, uh, I, and I think she meant well, um, and you could see my house. I mean, you, you could, it was across the street. I mean, it was just right there. And, and she, she was like, hey, do you want me to, to take you home and give you a ride home? And, and I was like, yeah, you know, I really, I can't walk. Like, what? That was totally fine. I think I, you know, probably scuffed my knee or something. And I'm in pain. And I'm all sad. And, and she gets her car and pulls her car up, and, and I jump right on in. And I will never forget my brother just jumping right in front of that car and just slamming his hands in the hood. Brian, get out! Right? And I was just like, okay. I was way more afraid of my brother uh, that moment than anything else. And, and I was clueless. And I don't think she, I think she really did mean well. But, and she probably knew I lived right there too, you know. But, and I think about that. When I think about someone shielding, right, just completely protecting me in my innocence or, or in my weakness, that through our faith, we're shielded by God's power, that we're going to be protected. And we went through kind of what it means in, in salvation when we first started this church, that God is going to see us through to the end, that when things get really tough and really hard, that he's going to give us the faith to endure, that he will provide that power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in that last time. Again, Karen says this, this means that the chosen are given new birth into two things, hope and an inheritance. Right? They've been given these two things. We've been born again. We've been given this new birth, and two things are given to us, hope and inheritance. But they're also guarded by faith until salvation is fully realized at some future time. This thought answers nicely to the threatening situation being addressed by the letter. And we're going to look at the persecution that's going to be happening to the individuals in, in, that, in that region, in, in uh, Galatia and Pantodosia and all those different locations, and how they are being persecuted, not because they're different, right? I get, I get teased all the time around my conservative family with long hair, you know, this crazy kid, right? I'm, that's not because, like, okay, they're teasing me. That's one thing. Like, they're making fun of me. That's fine. I got thick skin. I can handle it. That's, that's not, like, I don't go home and be like, oh, just suffering for Jesus, right? That's my cross to bear, right? No, that's got nothing to do with the fact that I'm a Christian, just the fact that I have long hair, and it's weird, right? Uh, that's fine. Um, I'm a weird guy, and I know that. You know that. Um, don't nod your head that much. Like. <laughs> um, anyways, we're going to be looking at that next week. Next week is specifically going to be looking at suffering, and, and uh, I want to close with this quote here. Um, Job says this, the certainty of future salvation animates the hope in which Christians now live, right? Knowing what's going to happen in the future, it gives us hope. It animates us. It brings us to life because it's grounded and rooted in Christ. She says this, making the eschatological future, all right? She's just talking about the, the future, the end times or whatever, just things I can't see that are going to be in the future, a present reality. Because the thing of the hope of Christ returning and bringing me back to life, that hope changes how I live now in this reality. This is a consolatory technique, right? It's a way to make me feel good. And it's intended to relieve, uh, relieve, relieve feelings of opposition by so closely interweaving the glories of the future with the present that this uh, present is transformed in the thought world of Peter's readers, that they're reading this 
And they're saying, wow, there is a hope. There is a glory. And this is worth it. Whatever it is that I might be, might be going through. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I'm, and I'm challenged by this book as I read through it. And it's a small book, so it's easy to read through multiple times. And as, and as I have, I, I've been so convicted by the suffering and the persecution. Because honestly, as, as, a, as a white man in this culture, I don't know what that's like. I really don't. I don't have to struggle the way a lot of people in our culture and our society do. And as I look at the world around us and I read these stories in these books, I was reminded um, when I was at my the first job I had in, in normal Illinois, I was a college pastor, and there's this sweet, sweet old, sweet old uh, African American lady in a church of just old white hair. And her name was Betty Ayers, and she would get up every once in a while and sing a special. And I will never forget the day that she sang, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. And I don't think there was a dry face in the auditorium at that point. Because Betty Ayers, an old woman who lived under Jim Crow, knew times of trouble. Knew what it meant to suffer for no reason. Simply because of convictions that she had. So I don't know what it's like. At least not like that. Not like Betty not like Peter, not like people who were dipped in oil and lit, and lit on fire to light Nero's garden at night. I don't know what that's like. But I think this is relevant to you, to us in this room, because our society and culture is changing and because we have a voice. And we're allowed to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And that, that will bring persecution. So my question is, what or who is your hope in times of trouble. Because this book is going to take a turn. But when it takes a turn, I hope that we can remember last week and this week and look at, man, this is all about Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. Will you bow with me as we sing and as we have communion together? We do this every week. where We take the elements and the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was spilled for us and the the bread that was torn, that was broken for us, that represent his body. As we partake in this sacrificial meal together, that we would lift up our hearts and our minds and our souls and our affections and our voices to worship and to sing and to praise a God who's a God of grace and mercy and a good God who's provided a way of salvation when he didn't need to. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good. I thank you for the time that we have here, and I thank you that we're able to open up your word and just look at three short verses. But in those three short verses, being able to unpack just a little bit of what the Apostle Peter is trying to do and point us to Jesus, to look at this living hope who is alive and well and that someday is going to return and he's going to make all things new, that everything wrong he's going to make right. And I pray that we would just worship him, that we would live for him, and that you would be honored by us in that, knowing that we can't do it by ourselves, but only by your power. So God, I pray that you'd be honored and glorified now as we, as we partake of these elements together as your body, as your bride. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.